It's 1592, and Michael Locke, a merchant from London, is visiting an elderly Greek pilot. Regaling Locke with a strange tale, he claims that a few years earlier, he had taken part in a Spanish sea voyage that sailed the Pacific coast, north of Mexico. The ship passed 47 degrees north latitude, lands that weren't yet on any European map. The pilot's name was Apostle Valerianos, also known as Juan de Fuca. And he declared that the people he met along the coast were rich in gold, silver, and pearls. Impressed by this Eldorado-like tale of wealth, the eager merchant penned a short account of his meeting. And that note was published a few years later. It mythologized the Pacific Northwest. Europeans thought that this land, known today as Western Canada, could hold vast and lucrative riches. As colonial ships began to poke through the inlets and forests of the place I now call home, two distinct worldviews came to a head. One chose to conquer and divide the land and profit from its wealth, and the other maintained its traditional practices of managing natural resources in relationship with the ecosystem. Everything we needed to survive came from the land. And one of those views sought to dominate the other. When the colonists got here, resulted in a lot of consequences. It's neither change nor technology that threatens culture, it's power. The worldviews of the First Peoples on Turtle Island, or what is now known as Canada, were overlooked and undervalued by the Western lens. Taming the land or being in dominion over the land. To either destroy or control those ecosystems. Amongst many cultural and ecological losses, one of many particular ecological treasures was threatened. The Karaoke ecosystem is quite important habitat for past First Nations and a lot of it got destroyed. You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, journeying with you through the genomic past to understand our present. For today's episode, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Dr. Liana Patrick. Yes. Liana, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Certainly. I'm a member of the Stellaten First Nation on my father's side and on my mother's side, I'm Acadian and Scottish. And I am an assistant professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. So... Speaking of sort of like the impacts of colonialism, you know, just (laughs) casual chit-chat, you've worked on a few films looking closely at how the legacy of colonialism has lingered in communities today. I was curious if you could tell us why these stories are important to you. I've I've always been interested in storytelling. Um, I started off my career wanting to be a journalist. And the stories that uh, come from Indigenous communities are little known. And I think this is changing now. I just really wanted to be a part of that, of telling these stories. So I'm very happy to be here. We'll be looking at Indigenous food systems from various communities across Turtle Island, but also interrogating that deeply held assumption we heard at the top of the episode. All right. So for this episode, I want to begin by sharing a story from our neck of the woods. Well, the, the oak is quite 
important. There's a species that's an icon of the Pacific Northwest. The Gary Oak ecosystem. The Gary Oak, which is why I spoke with J.B. Williams. Uh, my name's John Bradley Williams, or John. He's a botanist who specializes in the native plant species of British Columbia. And when it comes to the cultivation of Gary Oaks, they have quite a range of uses. Yeah, it's quite a powerful plant and important habitat for us First Nations. It, it was our agricultural system. We used to harvest the acorns from the oak tree and roast them up and eat them like nuts. We also roasted them and ground them and made them into a flour to make into our traditional biscuits. And then uh, the Gary Oak ecosystem is important because of these particular plants and flowers we evolved to be next to them. Camas is our one of our original starch sources. And they like to grow in and amongst the oaks. And then we have chocolate lily that live in with Gary Oaks. And they were our traditional rice. Then we also have, in my language, it's called gachmin. It's a plant that we use to treat tuberculosis when that was first introduced to us. Oh, interesting. Many species, including the Gary Oak, have a creation story, passed down orally through generations in the language of the indigenous peoples living alongside them. In, in our stories, he was... A titan or a giant person. And he was a very mean titan. He liked to kidnap and steal our children. And after scooping them up, he would run back to his house. And he would always move his house to different locations so nobody knew exactly where he lived. And when he got back to his house, he would cook the children alive and then eat them. And after eating them, he would use their bones to pick the food out of his teeth. Our creator had heard about him mistreating our little ones like that, sent a message with Raven telling him that he needs to behave and quit doing that. And he listened for about a day, and then he fell back into his old ways. Creator had heard about that and came back into the physical world and blew some magic into his hands, threw it at him, transforming him from the giant titan into the oak tree. And the gnarliness of the oak bark and the twistedness of the oak limbs reflect how gnarly and twisted he was when he was still in human form. Because you gotta be gnarly and twisted to cook children alive and then eat them. Yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. However, this is where Western settlers make an assumption. They believed these Eden-like meadows where the Gary Oaks grew were naturally occurring and overlooked that they had actually been cultivated for generations by indigenous peoples. And then a second assumption. They thought they had a better way of managing the land. Yeah, we have an estimated 1% to 3% left of the Gary Oak ecosystem. And that, that's being very generous with those estimates. When the colonists got here, uh, they already had nice policies and procedures set up to identify staple foods and staple ecosystems. And 
do their best to either destroy or control those ecosystems. I mean, that is a huge amount to have lost, like yeah. one to three. When they got into our territory, they purposely developed over these fields with their own agricultural systems, their infrastructure, and all of the buildings we live in. Because if they can do either of those things or both of them, it'll make it that much easier for them to assimilate us into Canadian culture. And so they already had an idea of, you know, get rid of the, the Gary Oak, we're going to plant these other plants without recognizing the value or even appreciating, and like you say, as a means of assimilation. And not really understanding that, that our agricultural system looks completely different compared to our visitors' agricultural system. Gary oaks are just one species in Cayley's My Home that is under threat. British Columbia has the largest diversity of organisms and ecosystems of any province in Canada. And research published in Global Ecology and Conservation states that the genetic diversity of these forests is under threat due to changes in land use, fragmentation, invasive species, and atmospheric pollution. The assumptions made by colonial powers have exacerbated these massive gaps in addressing habitat loss on the land. 100%. Um, Which I is why we spoke to a leading voice on traditional exploring. food systems across Turtle Island. Tanse, Sipagobanesis, Natiznakasun. My name is Tabitha, and I am an assistant professor in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at the University of British Columbia. Tabitha has her own story of connecting with the land through her life. My very first job when I was a child was picking raspberries at my grandmother's farm. And then we would go and sell them at the farmer's market. Food is an expression of care and is an expression of love for the land and for each other. Her appreciation of nature took her into an academic career. But she didn't really have her mindset on discussing Indigenous food systems. So uh, my... My supervisor and I were at a cafe and he said, let's talk through why you don't want to do Indigenous research. And I told him that uh, the reason I didn't want to do it is that all I had been exposed to were damage-centered research or the deficits um, of Indigenous communities, but that that wasn't my experience, that when I went to go visit my family, I was always fed. So he suggested that I look at a topic called Indigenous food sovereignty, which was very new to the literature at the time. There were only a couple of pieces. But I realized almost immediately as I began to read about concepts of Indigenous food sovereignty that this was already in practice in my family. So I examined 24 different food sovereignty initiatives in Western Canada happening in Indigenous communities. Their members had access to good food, to traditional food, to food that comes from the land. But what I was unprepared for was how emotional these conversations were for people. There was a lot of grieving uh, around food sovereignty. So when I finished my degree, on the one hand, I was learning about the beauty and the abundance of our food cultures. And on the other hand, I was seeing these emotions and I was hearing people talk about a history that I was not aware of. And I began to study the history of oppression and the history of starvation. And the reason that I did this is because an elder sat with me and said, in order to move forward, you first have to look back and you need to find out what happened to our people. 
Looking to the past, Tabitha looked closer at the colonial playbook that affected not only Gary Oak trees, but food systems from Manitoba and across to British Columbia. So prior to colonization, we know from oral history that starvation was not a chronic nor persistent problem in Indigenous communities, and that the land was the most important relationship in Indigenous people's daily lives. And that is, we cared for the land, and therefore the land cared for us. But our participation in them is critical to their futures. Our peoples were definitely working the lands, but we now know there are presence of forest gardens. Forest gardens, like the Gary Oak Meadows, which were tended by local peoples, just as you might a garden, providing the many types of foods that JB mentioned. And bison jumps. Bison jumps, a traditional form of hunting bison in prairie regions, whereby herds were lured over cliffs to provide significant sources of meat for the community. And fish weirs. Fish weirs, a fence-like trap that would guide fish into a dead end as tides and waves and waterways pushed them into the nets. But this was also a double-edged sword because our so-called lack of presence on the land in ways that were colonially understood were disregarded. And I can think of very early on a concept that came from a theorist named John Locke called agrarian labor that said, in order to deserve the lands, you have to work the lands and bring them up to their fullest production capacity. And so this very early idea, which is also tied to terra nullius, which says empty lands, but notice what we're saying, right? We're saying agrarian labor, we're saying empty lands. Our use, our relationship to the land was entirely ignored. That dominion idea of empty lands couldn't be further from the truth. Genomic and archaeological research using ancient DNA have provided insights into the lives of indigenous peoples. On the coast of British Columbia, an analysis revealed historic sites where salmon were selectively harvested among Coast Salish communities. These food systems existed within First Nations long before settlers arrived. And so... When our knowledges are disregarded, what the consequence is, is a colonial food system. Those starvation policies saw the deliberate eradication of species like the bison, like the beaver. We see the loss of salmon in Ontario. We see the loss of cedar, the loss of otter um, on the West Coast. Those ideas, those ideas related to colonial production have resulted in a lot of consequences. One of those being that we're warming our atmosphere and altering the nature of our landscapes. I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on from this episode is how many other practices Mm -hmm. there are and have been used for, you know, centuries, thousands of years. What stood out for you, Liana? I agree. And I feel like we're, we're sort of consistently bombarded with all of the crises that we're facing mm-hmm. um, ecologically, you know, climate-wise, uh, on a number of different levels. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there is, I think, this this opportunity that's opened up because of what's happening. I really thought the study that uh, you mentioned earlier, the one that used ancient DNA, the genomic and archaeological research looking into uh, the Pacific salmon. Uh, I I was really I was reflecting on it, thinking about my own community and our fish practices. So the study showed that there was a an abundance of male chum salmon that was found in in the locations that they were studying. 
And it just, it, it showed that actually there was, you know, selective and sustainable um, harvesting practices that were being used because they were allowing the females to um, go to the spawning grounds so that the next generation could be able to return to the ocean. Yeah, it's sort of like what what strikes me from that story, too, is that by having sort of that active management of salmon, you're also able to preserve some of that genetic diversity yeah. of the salmon. And it just it made me think of in our community, the Dachel communities, we have a fish fence. And historically, we would have dip netted from that fish fence. And we did that so that we could also be selective about the fish that we allowed through. Mm-hmm. Which overall is better for salmon health and and for ecosystem health. And uh, I'm quite excited because we're also going to have some more genetics content coming up here pretty quick with the Gary Oak. Yeah, I I mean, it, it makes me wonder, you know, what can we do to build a path forward? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Liana Patrick. We want to get more people to listen to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like Nice Genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Help grow this conversation by planting your favorite episode in a friend's ear. Wonderful. All right. So Gary Oaks are a keystone species which help shape ecosystems. But the assumptions of incoming settlers have had long-lasting negative impacts on these new-to-them ecosystems. But this isn't a story about a species on the path to extinction. More so, it's about understanding how a way of life can be tied to the land and the consequences of losing that. Gary Oaks is this iconic species. Oh, I grew up in Victoria. I, I know all about Gary Oaks. Yeah. In this next chapter, our producer, Sean, spoke with Canadian anthropologist Dr. Wade Davis, who also holds the title of National Geographic's Explorer in Residence. Oh, well, I mean, you, you know, at the Geographic, I was in sometimes 100 countries a year. What we realized is all we could really do is to take our enormous audience, to take them to places in the ethnosphere where the practices were so incredibly dazzling that you couldn't help but embrace this fundamental idea of anthropology, that every culture has something to say, you know, that every culture had taken our common human genius and done something amazing with it. Wade has traveled far and wide, learning about the various ecological systems of Indigenous communities around the world. But when he was first stepping into his career, it was during a time when anthropology and naturalists were at a crossroads, with each group making some incorrect assumptions about the other. Okay, are you recording there? You know, there was a very interesting moment in 1979 on Harvard's campus. Emerson Hall, greeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama. When the Dalai Lama wrapped up his first tour of the West. And uh, that very night, E.O. Wilson, the great legendary biologist um, who coined the term with Tom Lovejoy, biodiversity, was introducing in one theater Norman Myers, a Kenyan scientist. And across the way, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, was giving a teaching. Human being. Yes. We have the right to be happy. And naturally, all the students and the faculty were lined up around the block to hear the Dalai Lama. But in introducing uh, Myers at that 
moment, E.O. Wilson said, and I quote, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right and they'd rather be across the way listening to that religious kook, you know how far we've got to educate the public at large. Professor Wilson, bless him, would be the first to regret those words, but it wasn't his fault. It was typical of the era. At that time, there was a chasm between biology and the social sciences that was unbridgeable. You know, the anthropologists saw the naturalists as being elitist, and the naturalists saw human beings, particularly indigenous people, as part of the problem. And I probably was the only student running back and forth that night between the two talks because I was so acutely aware that the forces that were afflicting one phenomena were eroding the other. People and nature are inextricably linked. The teachings preserved by traditional inhabitants of the Amazon, the Himalayas, and the forests of British Columbia could be a beacon towards solving some of the largest challenges we face as a global community. You know, the central idea of anthropology, cultural anthropology, was a notion that the world in which you live in is just a model of reality. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when they answer that question... The peoples of the world do so in 7,000 different languages. But the extraordinary thing is that that was just an idea in anthropology, the reality of which was only proved to be true in the last generation by geneticists who have shown, without doubt, that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth and carried the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. But here's the important idea. If we're cut from the same genetic cloth, we share the same genius. And how that genius is expressed is simply a matter of cultural choice, adaptive imperative. There is no hierarchy in the realm of culture. Notions of the primitive and the civilized are colonial conceits. We have this idea that indigenous people are delicate and frail, you know, and destined to fade away. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every community I've ever worked with has, has been dynamic and live and living and very much keen to have their voice at the table of human wisdom. In the stunning affirmation of the unity of the human experience, um, genetics has come to the fore to prove the truth that every culture's got something to say. Each deserves to be heard. And what that allows us to do is look critically at our own culture and ask, where did we come from? What were the values that we absorbed? And the point is that most society's dynamic is reciprocity, some kind of iteration of the basic idea that the earth owes its bounty to people, people owe their, their fidelity to the earth. And this has really critical consequences. The lesson of anthropology puts the lie to those of us in our own culture, including those cutting down those Gary Oaks you just referred to, who say that we cannot change when we know we must change the fundamental way we interact with the natural world. I mean, that is what climate change is telling us. The path to creating a more sustainable and equitable world begins by dispelling those assumptions Wade mentions. We're looking at two very distinct and incompatible worldviews. Which is where we come back to our conversation with Dr. Tabitha Robin Martins. So these ideas are sort of rooted in the infrastructure of colonial Canada and are still present in our food systems today. If we take all we've contemplated today, from our relationships to each other and the land, reconciliation, 
doing the science. This picture forward is looking like a three-footed foot race, maybe more feet. The point is, each is happening alongside the other. I'm really inspired by this idea that our ecosystems and indeed all of creation contain a larger order of harmony and that we are in active relationship and that we have responsibilities as Indigenous peoples towards all of creation. And so I'm inspired by the reinstatement of natural law. And what excites me most is thinking about going back to those treaties that our ancestors made with the cedar, with the salmon, with the bison, with the moose. Because those treaties ask us to take responsibility and they hold us to account for when we don't take responsibility for plants and animals and land and soil and sun and moon and stars. The kinds of agreements, those sacred agreements that our ancestors made, that's where I want us to go to, is to begin to reinstate those again and for that to form the basis of our food sovereignty. And it requires accountability and responsibility on the part of people. Yeah, I think our governments could, in terms of seeing my vision out, is to make their own native gardens. J.B. Williams also slipped in the important idea that by staying curious, that's how we move closer to reconciliation and building a healthier future. What brings me hope is that more and more people are reaching out to knowledge keepers like myself and knowledge keepers like my mentors, like my elders. People are in relationship with the land. That holds true while observing the effects of colonial assumptions on Gary Oak Meadows and Indigenous communities, both pushed from where they were rooted. But as Wade Davis mentioned, the Indigenous peoples from around the world are diverse and have their own thriving knowledges. And that diversity, well, it also holds true for the Gary Oak. Research from the Vancouver Island University studied 121 Gary Oaks and found that they had high levels of genetic diversity, which in turn gives them adaptive potential and makes them well-suited to survive the effects of our changing climate. So by working with the land and continuing to do so from the perspective of people and land linked, we'll keep seeing species like Gary Oaks in our landscape. I actually went to a program called Alunanuk that's uh, learning from homeland in my language. And when it was time to decide what my project should be, I decided that my project should be recreating a functioning Gary Oak Meadow. And so I took a piece of grass or a piece of turf that, that was about 20 by 20 feet and converted it from that that non-functioning grass into a functioning Gary Oak Meadow. What was that experience like for you to recreate that? In restoring areas to to a fraction of what they what what they were. It was very inspiring and in the terms that that as as I was working through that program and as, as we we're getting close to the end of that program, I began to think that that yeah, every bit every bit helps. <laughs> Okay. 
Our guests for today were Dr. Tabitha Robin Martins from the University of British Columbia, ethnobotanist John Bradley Williams, and anthropologist and National Geographic Explorer in Residence, Dr. Wade Davis. And also a very special thanks to my co-host today, Dr. Liana Patrick with the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Liana, would you like to uh, take us to the outro? I'd be happy to. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. And if you're listening with kiddos or a teacher looking to spice up your lessons, we have learn-along activity sheets added to the show description of each episode. This was so fun, Liana. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Kaylee. And that's it for season three of Nice Genes. What a time we've had dispelling common assumptions that show up in science and society. But you're not rid of us yet. We've also got a few more bite-sized Gene Shorts episodes coming your way. As we close out the season, I really want to thank everyone who's made this season of the show possible. Teamwork truly does make the dream work. Our senior producer is Sean Holden. Associate producer is Jenny Cunningham. Our sound design and audio mixing is Patrick Emil. Our project lead is Mandy Elkeray. For marketing is Matthew Stevens. And our creative director is Jen Moss. From Genome British Columbia, producer and social media is Sarah Lando. And our production consultant is Phoebe Melvin. And finally, thank you all for listening in and joining this genomics nerd herd. We couldn't do the show without you. So, thanks. Is there anything else you want to share with us that we haven't asked you about that you think would be important for our listeners to know? Uh, just move forward with good heart and good intent. I love that. That's that's the absolute perfect ending. <laughs>